Okay, well, you know what I'm going to say now, so uh, go ahead and start and uh, get ready. Here we go. Turn with me, if you will, to where this week's Torah portion begins. Brand new book, second book in this case, although it's actually an old book. But um, certainly it is one that um, is fundamental to the story. It's a book of Exodus in English, or Shemot in uh, Hebrew. Uh, second book in the uh, in the Torah and in Scripture, and uh, it goes like this in chapter 1. By the way, the, the word Shemot, of course, means names, and that's how it begins. These are the names of the Benai Israel, the sons of Israel, who came into Egypt with Yaakov. Every man came with his household. Now, we're going to get 11 names here in this list of the, uh, the brothers, essentially, uh, the sons of Israel, uh, Reuben, Shimeon, Levi, and Judah. And then Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Yaakov were 70 souls. And it says Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all of that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful. They increased abundantly. They multiplied. They waxed mightingly, uh, exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now eventually it says there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, now, by the way, some of the uh, the scholars will say this might have been a, an overthrow of the Egyptian regime, regime and so forth. That, that certainly does seem likely. One of the things that the Egyptians had a tendency to do was kind of expunge their history, kind of like what you see in the grade schools today when uh, when a new regime takes over. He said to his people, behold, these uh, people of the Benai Israel, the sons of Israel, are too many and too mighty for us, so let's deal wisely with them. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when they uh, w- there befalls us any war, well, they might join themselves up with our enemies. In other words, a, a fifth column is what he's afraid of, and fight against us and um, get them up out of the land. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitom, Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, and they were really uh, filled with dread because of the Benai Israel. Now, the Israel, or the Egyptians, it says, uh, made the children of Israel serve with rigor. So they really put them to the lash, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, mortar and brick, all manner of service in the field, and in all their service, wherein, wherein they made them serve with rigor. Finally, it says, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Now, this is, of course, one of those interesting places. I usually note that this is... Um, one of the, well, probably the first major refutation of the entire bogus premise of Romans chapter 13, the uh, the whore church version, government-inspired version. And basically, remember, it boils down to when Big Brother says jump, you, you good little slave, you say how high. Well, that, of course, is anti-scriptural. And here's one of the easy proof texts. So the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. First one's name was Shifra. The name of the other was Puah. Now, Puah... Uh, literally means splendid. And this is the only time that word is used in, in uh, the Torah, which is kind of fascinating. But both of these midwives have names that suggest that they are very much beloved and favored of Yah. Uh, Shifra, of course, means uh, fair or beauty as well. All right. Uh, the Pharaoh said, well, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool and see what it is. If it's a son, then kill him. But if it's a daughter, well, you can let her live. Midwives, it says, now notice... Did they do the Romans 13 and jump when Pharaoh said, uh, you know, jump? They didn't. They feared Elohim instead. It says they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Notice they were rebellious to a king who was doing something in opposition to the creator's um, word. 
Instead, they saved the men children alive. The king of Egypt called for the midwives, and he said to them, Hey, what are you doing here? Why have you done this thing? Save these men children alive. And the midwife says to Pharaoh, Well, because, you know, these Hebrew women, they're not like you Egyptian women. They're lively. By the time we get there, the midwives, uh, they're already done. They're done with the delivery. So, uh, did Yah punish the uh, Hebrew midwives for their rebellion to Pharaoh and their rebellion to Romans 13 as preached? No. says, he instead dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared Elohim, that he made them houses. So not only was were they beloved and have names that are recorded in Scripture, uh, he made them houses. So Pharaoh charged in all of the people. He said, look, every son that's born, you cast into the river. Every daughter, you can save alive. Huh. Well, the, the next part of the story tells us one of the results of that evil edict. There went a man of the uh, house of Levi. He took a wife, a daughter of Levi. That woman conceived. She bore a son. And when she, saw, when she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him for these three months. But ultimately, she couldn't hide him anymore. So we got a problem here. And at this point, she built for him an ark made out of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch. She put the child in it and then laid that in the flags by the brink of the river. That would be the Nile River. Meanwhile, his sister stood afar off to see what would be done to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. Now, I want to pause for a second, because I was thinking about that story this week. I mean, we all know the story. We've seen the um, uh, Cecil B. DeMille version of the Ten Commandments, and we can picture it even. And here comes this uh, beautiful daughter of Pharaoh down the river. What's interesting to me is, think about this, of all the places and the length of the Nile River across Egypt, what are the odds, <laughs> unless you just happen to know the way the Creator works, that the daughter of Pharaoh herself would happen to be coming to the very place where this uh, young man-child boy is going to float by in the, um, in the river? So the sister's watching. Pharaoh's daughter came down. She was looking to bathe. Maidens walked along by the riverside. She saw the ark there among the flags. She sent her handmaid over to fetch it. She opened it, saw the child, and behold, it was a boy, and he wept. She had compassion on the young boy, and she said, now, this is one of those questions for the uh, alert in the audience. How do you think she knew? There's at least two ways that I can think of she would have had a pretty good clue. Anyway, she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then her sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, now, I, at this point, folks, i got to admit, you just got to love this sister. This is, uh, you know, we don't know exactly how, how old this young girl is, but she's, I'm guessing, right, six, seven, eight, maybe ten, um, However old she is, she has just saved her brother's life. And uh, we're going to find out her name. We already know her name. But her name is not going to literally be told to us for uh, for decades yet. At this point, she's just a sister. But I uh, I, I love the sister. You, you, you have to love the um, the bravery of this young woman. She goes up to the daughter of Pharaoh. And she says to Pharaoh's daughter, Would you like me to go call you a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she can nurse that child for you? <laughs> That's fabulous. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yeah, go. And the maiden went. She called the child's mother, who just happens to be her mother. Pharaoh's daughter then said unto her, Well, take this child away and nurse it for me, and I'll give you your wages. So not only is, uh, as it turns out, the child's mother and the little girl's mother going to be able to save the child, thank you, uh, young sister, but she's going to get paid for it beside. 
So the woman took the child. She nursed it. The child grew, and she brought him into Pharaoh's uh, daughter, and he became her son. So essentially, he was adopted into the royal family. And the daughter called his name Moshe and said, It's because I drew him out of the water, the Mayim, a Mayim. Now, it came to pass in those days when Moshe was grown up, um, and English, of course, uh, Moses, but uh, Moshe is the Hebrew way that it's normally pronounced. He went out unto his brethren, and he looked into their burdens. Now, some renderings say on, and I think this is one of those great Rashi-isms here. The word in Hebrew is actually ba. It starts with the ba, which means in or into. So it's not just that he looked from afar and saw the burdens. The implication here... Uh, and uh, it would be uh, at, by the way, he looked at the burdens, you know, the direct object, the pointer, it would be normally at. But in this case, it's a bit of an unusual in the Hebrew. He looked into their burdens. So what the implication is here, he was looking in a deeper fashion than just somebody who says, I feel your pain. He saw an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Why is the story in here? Well, the story is going to set up what follows later, and it also gives us a glimpse at the character of this fellow Moshe. Not only does he uh, do something about it when he sees this uh, this wrong being done, but it's the way that it's explained to us. He looked into the burdens here, and he sees something. So he looked all over the place. When he saw there was no one around, then he smote that Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, there were two men, two Hebrews, that were striving together against each other. And he said to the one that was in the wrong, hey, why are you smiting your fellow? The response, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You think you're going to kill me too, just like you did that Egyptian? Now that got Moses' attention. He says uh, he feared, saying, surely the thing is known. Now Pharaoh, as you might suspect, eventually he found out about it, and he sought to slay Moshe. But instead, Moshe fled from the face of Pharaoh, and he dwelt in the land of, of Midian, and eventually sat down, where else, a place where so many men seemed to meet their wives, at the well. Priests of Midian had seven daughters, it says. When they came and drew water, they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moshe stood up and helped them, and he watered their flock. So then they came home to Reuel, their father. Now, he is... Uh, I, I would always suggest this guy has uh, got more names, probably, assuming it's the same guy, and I think it is, uh, more names, more titles than any else, than any other uh, main character in the book. Uh, Ray, well, of course, more folks are going to know him later as Yitro or Jethro. He said, how is it you've come here to us today? How'd you get home so soon, too? Uh, he's talking to the daughters. How'd you get home so soon? And, and they said, well, you know, there was an Egyptian man delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. Moreover, he drew water for us, and he watered the flock. So uh, the man, Reuel, said to his daughter, well, where is this fellow? Why is it that you've left the man? Call him, and, uh, you know, bring him into dinner. Let him eat bread. So Moshe, it says, was content to dwell with the man. And he ended up giving Moshe Zipporah, which means a bird, literally, his daughter. She bore a son and called his name Gershom, for she said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. So that root word there, ger, right, uh, we recognize as stranger. So it came to pass, in the course of a whole bunch of days, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh that had it out for Moshe, finally died. And the children of Israel sighed because of the bondage. They cried out. Their cry came up unto Elohim by reason of the bondage. And it says, Elohim heard at 
their groaning. He heard what? Their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Yaakov. And Elohim saw the Benai Israel, and he took cognizance of them. So things are now coming to a head. Um, chapter 3 tells us probably one of the most famous stories in uh, in the Torah. Moshe, here he is, keeping the flock of Jethro. Now we got the other name. His father-in-law, priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the furthest end of the, the wilderness. And there he came to the mountain of Elohim at Horeb. And then it says, the Malak, the angel of Yahuwah. Now notice that uh, this is the first time in this book we're going to get the, the Tetragrammaton, the, the formal name yod heh So the Malak, the messenger of Yahuwah, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but it was not consumed. And uh, here's another one of those places where you, know, you, you pause and you, you think about the marvel of the uh, the work here that we're reading and the creation. Um the creator wants to get Moshe's attention. And you just love it. Uh, you know, there's probably a, a thousand ways that he could have accomplished this. But this was the one that he chose, knowing full well that Moshe is going to say, well, what's going on here? And he did. He says, look, I will turn aside now and see this great sight. Why is this bush not burned up? When Yehoah saw that he had turned aside, kind of as he probably expected to see, Elohim called him out of the midst of the bush, and he said, now, we know the response. We know the words that we're going to hear. So uh, if it ever happens, folks, this is one of several, well, not just several, lots and lots of places in Scripture where we have the behavior that is desired modeled. Okay, Moses, Moses, Moshe, Moshe, he says. All right, everybody say it with me. We know the answer, right? Hineni, here I am. And he said, don't draw nigh here. Uh, put your shoes off from your feet because this place where you're standing is set apart. It is ground that is kadosh. And moreover, he said, Ani Yahuwah Elohechem. I am the Elohim of your father. Well, he's going to say that later, but here he's introducing it. So let's just uh, get there the way he does, slowly. He says, Ani, the Elohim of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moshe hid his face because he was afraid to look upon Elohim. And Yahuwah said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people there in Mitzrayim in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, and I know their pains. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Mitzrayites, the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. Moreover, I've seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. And uh, now therefore come, and I will send you unto Pharaoh. Now here is where you start to see the plot thickening just a little bit. You're going to do what? Huh? Hmm? Say that again? Come now therefore, I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the Benai Israel, out of Mitzrayim. Now Moses then says to uh, to Elohim, uh, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Egypt out of Israel, out of, out of Egypt? The response, Well, certainly I'll be with you. This will be the token unto you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you will serve Elohim upon this mountain. And Moses, Moshe then said unto Elohim, Behold, when I come to the Benai Israel, and I say to them, the Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, well, okay, what's his name? What shall I tell him? 
And he says unto Moshe, I am that I am. And uh, you'll hear this, aye, I share aye. That's what you'll tell them. Tell the children of Israel, the I am has sent me unto you. Moreover, uh, Elohim said to Moshe, uh, Then you also shall say to the children of Israel, Yahuwah, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is Shemi, my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. So, even though we see the name appearing in Genesis, uh, during the creation story, we see it appearing, uh, and in fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew his name, but we're going to get a clarification here, which is kind of fascinating. And we're going to see that um, he was known primarily, not exclusively, but primarily by a different name unto them, and now we're going to see something else made manifest, and that's what's being emphasized in this story. So go, he says, gather the elders of Israel together, say to them, Yahuwah, Elohim of your fathers, the El of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Yaakov, has appeared unto me, and he said, I have surely remembered you, and seen what's being done to you in Egypt. And I've said, I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken. So that word there, Hebrew word is shamar, shema, uh, as in shema Israel, hear and obey. That's what they will do to your voice. And you shall come, you, along with the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and you'll say to him, Yahuwah, Elohim of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now let's go, we pray you, three days' journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to Yahuwah uh, Eloheka. Or in this case, it's Elohenu, our El. And I know, says Yah, that the king of Egypt, he's not going to let you go. He will not give you leave except by a mighty hand. So that's what's going to happen. I'll put forth my hand, smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, then he'll finally let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they'll come to pass that when you go out, you will not go out empty. In other words, uh, nowadays we would say you won't go out empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of her that sojourns in her house jewels, things made out of silver and gold and raiment, clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, and you shall despoil the uh, Egyptians, people of, of Mitzrayim. So Moshe answered, and he said, But behold, they're not going to believe me. Uh, they're not going to hearken to my voice. They'll say, Yahuwah hadn't appeared to you. And Yahuwah then said to him, well, What do you got in your hand there? And he said, Well, a rod. And then the response, he, he says, Cast it on the ground. So he did. He cast it on the ground. And it became a nachash, a serpent. Moshe fled from before it. And then Yahuwah said to Moshe, Put your hand out. Take that thing by the tail. He did. He put his hand out, he laid hold of it, and it became a rod again in his hand. That they might believe that Yahuwah, Elohim of their fathers, the El of Abraham, the El of Isaac, and the El of Yaakov has appeared to you. So, Yahuwah then furthermore said to him, Now, put your hand into your bosom. Uh, this is like Napoleon style, right? Put your hand in there into the jacket pocket. Now it, we see it with Napoleon. Moshe is going to do something similar. Puts his hand in there, and when he took it out, it was white as snow, leprous. Or uh, we would uh, we would recognize that this is not uh, Hansen's disease. Uh, this is that he was a Metzora. It was, in fact, Zara'at that had infected his hand. 
All right, he said, put it back in there. And he did. He put his hand back into his bosom. This time he took it out, and behold, it was all flesh-colored again. So he said, it shall come to pass, if they won't believe you, nor hearken to the voice of that first sign, uh, throwing your rod on the ground, and it becomes a nakash, well, then they will believe the voice of the latter sign. Now, if it come to pass, he says, that they still won't believe even these two signs, nor hearken to your voice, then... You shall take of the water of the river, pour it on dry land, and the water which you take out of the river shall become blood, dam, upon the dry land. Now Moshe said then unto Yahuwah, O Lord, I'm not a man of words, uh, not uh, heretofore, nor since you have spoken unto your servant. You know, I'm, I'm kind of thick of speech. I'm slow of speech. I have a slow tongue. Yahuwah said to him, uh, Just exactly who do you think made man's mouth? Or who makes a man deaf or dumb or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahuwah? So go, therefore, and I'll be with you. I will be your mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall speak. And he said, O Lord, send, I pray you, by the hand of him whom you will send. So he sounds like he's still reluctant. And this, it says, kindled the anger of Yahuwah against Moshe. And he said, all right, uh, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Also, behold, uh, he comes forth to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So what? Moses hadn't seen his brother, presumably, in a long time at this point. He tells, um, he tells Moshe, well, you speak to him and put the words into his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I'll teach you what you need to do. He will be your spokesperson unto the people, and it will come to pass that he shall be to you a mouth, and you will be to him in the stead of Elohim. You'll be the the, the speaker to him as the mouth. And uh, by the way, you'll take in hand this rod, and that's the thing that you'll do. You'll use to, to do the signs. So Moshe went. He returned to Yitro, his father-in-law. He said to him, Let me go, I pray you. Return to my brethren that are in Mitzrayim. See whether they're yet alive. And Yitro said to Moshe, Go in shalom, in peace. So, Yahuwah then said unto Moshe, There in Midian, Go, return unto Egypt, for all the men that, are, uh, that sought your life are now dead. So Moshe took his wife and his sons, notice it's plural at this point, he set them upon an ass, he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moshe took that rod of Elohim in his hand, and Yahuwah said unto Moshe, When you go back into Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your hand. But I will in fact harden his heart. He ain't going to let the people go. And then you'll say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahuwah, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I've said unto you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, and you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will slay your son, your firstborn. So one of the things we know is that Yah knows the end from the beginning. And here he is literally laying out uh, essentially the entire scope of the ten plagues. He's illustrated what's going to happen up front. And now he's telling him what's going to happen at the end. He isn't going to listen. And I will end up slaying his son, his firstborn. It came, came to pass on the way to the lodging place that Yahuwah met him and sought to kill him sought to kill Moshe. So this is one of those places where, uh, admittedly, a lot of folks will scratch their head and say, what's what's happening here? Zipporah, it says, that's his wife, took a flint, and she proceeded to cut off the foreskin of her son, cast it at his feet, and she says to him, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So it says, he let him alone. Elohim, it sounds like, let Moses alone. And then she said, a bridegroom of blood in regard of the circumcision. So you get the impression that she is not particularly happy with the concept here. And um, probably a lot like the whore church. Uh, she says, no, we're not doing that. You know, we got uh, we got our Midianite gods, and, and they don't want us to do that. Um, what's what's the deal here? But it, it looks like that she, um, when she realized the result was Yah was going to slay her husband, that she relented. And I can't help but think that um, if you ask the question, what's going on here? It sounds like Moses caved, right? He caved to her. Now, that sounds a whole lot like what we saw in the garden. And uh, as a result, he wasn't going to do anything to her. He was going to, in fact, slay Moses. She got the message. Okay, then Yahuwah said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moshe. And he went, and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Now Moshe then told Aaron all the words of Yahuwah and how he had been sent and all the signs that he had been charged with. And Moshe and Aaron together, they went, they gathered together all of the elders of the Bani Israel. And Aaron, as it uh, turns out, spoke all the words which Yahuwah had spoken to Moshe. And he did the signs now in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that Yahuwah had remembered the Bani Israel, that he had seen their affliction, well, then they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Now afterwards it says, Moshe and Aaron came, and they said unto Pharaoh, Thus says Yahuwah, Elohim of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the, mid, in, in the wilderness, Bamidbar. And uh, here I think are some of the most fateful words that Pharaoh ever utters. And if you can uh, remember the movie, I can picture. I, I can't help it, folks. Yul Brenner did a good job. I picture Yul Brenner. Who is this Yahuwah that I should hearken unto his voice and let Israel go? I know him not. I don't know any Yahuwah. Moreover, I'm not going to let Israel go. Oops. They said, the Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. Let's go. Uh, let us go, we pray you, three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice unto Yahuwah or El, uh, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. King of Egypt said unto them, uh, Wherefore do you, Moshe and Aaron, cause the people to break loose from their work? You think I'm going to give them days off just because you're asking for it? Get back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you will make them rest from their burdens? So um, that's a whole lot of folks, and I'm not going to let them off. Same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers. He said, Look, uh, you shall no more give the people straw to make brick. Okay, it was tough before. You think? Oh, well, try it without making. Try making brick without straw. For furthermore, I let them go and get their own straw. You go gather it too. As for the tail or the uh, the quota of bricks for the day, the things you need to make. Well, I'm not going to change that either. Uh, you shall not diminish anything from it. I expect the quota to be met. You just need to uh, double down and recognize you're going to do it on lots less um, feedback and support. So, they're idle. That's why he cry, they cry out, he says, uh, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Ha, ha, ha. So instead, let heavier work be laid upon the men that they label therein, and let them not regard lying words. He's accusing Moshe of being a liar. 
I have a strong suspicion he's going to regret that. The taskmasters of the people went out, their officers, they spoke to the people, and they said, here's what Pharaoh says, I'm not going to give you any straw. Go get your own straw where you can find it, if you can find it, and none of your work will be diminished, your quote is unchanged. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Mitzrayim to try to gather stubble for straw. Now, taskmasters were urgent. They, uh, they didn't let up. They said, fulfill your work, your daily task, just like there was when there was straw. Har, har, har. Officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And uh, they said, well, why have you not fulfilled your appointed task in making bricks, both yesterday and today, as you always have? Then the officers of the Benai Israel came, and they cried out to Pharaoh and said, Why are you dealing this way with your servants? You haven't given us any straw. And they say to us, Make brick. And behold, your servants are beaten, because the fault is in your own people. Response? Oh, you guys are idle. You're, you're slackers. That's why you say, Let's go and sacrifice to Yahuwah. So you go, therefore, and work instead. No straw will be given to you. And nope, we're not going to diminish the quota. Tough luck. Sorry, Charlie. The officers of the children of Israel did. They saw that they were set on mischief when they said, you're not going to diminish anything from your bricks or from your daily tasks. And they met with Moshe and Aaron, uh, who stood in the way, as they came forth from Pharaoh. So they're going to have a confrontation now. They said to him, Yehuah, look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, to put a hand in their, to put a sword, rather, in their hand to slay us. So basically, they're coming to Moshe and saying, look, now you guys have made things really nasty here for us. Moshe then returned unto Yehuah, and he said, Lord, Adon, why are you dealing this way with your people? Is this uh, what you want? Is Why is it that you even sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has dwelt, he has dealt ill with his people. And by the way, you haven't delivered him yet either. The final verse of the portion this week is first verse in chapter six, and it's uh, it's not a cliffhanger, but it certainly is one of those foreshadowing um, promises from the Almighty. He says, Yehuda says to Moshe, "Look now, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh." For by a strong hand he shall let them go, and by a strong hand he shall drive them out of his land. And uh, with that, I'll read uh, just the, the next little bit, because this is the, uh, the verse that is going to resonate throughout all of this book, and ultimately throughout Scripture. Elohim spoke to Moshe, and he said unto him, Ani Yahuwah. Ani Yahuwah. And that sets up where the uh, the next week's Torah portion begins. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. So come out of her. Hey folks, Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. Welcome back. Let's talk about a, uh, a new book, or at least it's new this Torah cycle around. It starts at the beginning of the uh, book of Exodus, or in uh, Hebrew, Shemot. The reason for that is because the Torah portion, which of course has the same name as the, the book when it's the first one, says these are Shemot, the names of the sons of Israel. And it's kind of funny because you might think that's not really the name of the, um, the book. Maybe in this sense, Exodus is a... Uh, 
uh, a more reasonable summary, but it is kind of interesting, at least, that Shemot 2 is how the book begins, and it describes the names of all of these people who are the tribes of Israel, and that is indeed what the book is also about, if you think about it. It has to do with these tribes and all of the mixed multitude that are later going to join them, and um, they're coming out of this bondage and how they got into bondage. So uh, what I want to do today, and where I think I want to go... And uh, this is one of those uh, titles that uh, I have this uh, strong suspicion, call it a guiding of the Ruach, that was given to me at the very last moment. But it was how I was going to begin today, and then I realized, no, this is exactly what we're talking about here. So well, let's call this one Setting the Stage, because that's what the Torah portion does. And indeed, that's what the uh, the book does. And I'm going to contend that's where we are again, too. So one of the things that, as you know, uh, my nerdiness inclines me to do is note uh, that uh, these cycles of history, cycles of prophecy, as Mark Twain said, they, they may not um, repeat precisely, but they rhyme. And we are seeing some rhyming here, and uh, that's true on a number of levels. So that's kind of where I want to go, and that's part of the reason why I think setting the stage is so appropriate. So let's do that. Let's take a quick recap of um, what the book says and how we begin. After the names here, Shemot, we get uh, essentially one of the key verses. Uh, Now it says, there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And uh, that's kind of key for a number of reasons, and, and I think it's uh, one of those phrases that's pregnant with meaning. In other words, uh, does that mean he doesn't know wisdom either? Uh, because the old Pharaoh recognized Joseph, knew what he had, and elevated him to a position of authority, and indeed saved the country. Uh, this king doesn't know Joseph. Um, kind of makes you wonder, does he uh, not have any wisdom at all either? Because one thing's for sure, the very next thing he seems to say is, hey, let's kill us some people, right? Let's kill all the male child, because uh, we got to get a, get a handle on these people that uh, once were invited in, now they're too numerous for them, we can't control them. And if this begins to sound familiar, folks, um, for different reasons, perhaps, different parts of a similar cycle, well, stay with me, because we're going to see some more of it. Uh, next thing here, they uh, they afflicted these folks, and um, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. Hmm, interesting. And then it says the king of Egypt decided he was going to speak to the Hebrew midwives. And interestingly, we're told their names. One was Shifra, or um, um, beauty, brightness, and the other's name was Pua, which stands for splendid. Only time we see that name used in scripture. So we start off with these Hebrew midwives that are named uh, Splendid and Beauty. And you kind of get the impression that the creator is on their team. And they're not exactly on Pharaoh's team. And of course that leads me uh, just about every time around to note, this is the teaching if you want to go to a place that pretty well debunks uh, Romans 13, not inspired version, a Romans 13 government inspired version. And uh, as you know, I like to paraphrase it. Uh, when uh, when Big Brother says jump, you say how high. Well, this debunks it. So the uh, king of Egypt tells him, when you look upon the birth stool and you see a male child, kill it. And uh, the midwives didn't listen. They didn't read Paul, I guess. They didn't get the government-inspired memo. They feared Elohim instead. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they saved the men's children alive. Well, right there, we um, we can see a couple of things. But I want to, because we're setting the stage here, I want to take just a minute. I am not going to spend much time on it. If there are questions, as always, I'm happy to answer those. But uh, you that have, uh, uh, regulars that have been around for several Torah cycles know that uh, I am not a fan of the government-inspired version of Romans 13 or the whole church teaching about it. And um, I will do this, though. I'll read Romans 13, 1. 
and let's just see if it doesn't kind of suggest real strongly that somebody here is lying or somebody's mistranslating is more like it. So it says this in the uh, New King James Version, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. All right, let's go back and look at this uh, Exodus chapter 1 here. The midwives who have those two wonderful names. King tells them, when you see a, a male child born, whack it. And they say no. They feared Elohim instead. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Well, wait a minute. Who's lying here? There is no authority except from God. Is this Pharaoh from God? Does not he then have the authority of God? Does not he speak with God's voice? Who the hell do they think they are? Answer. Well, the midwives feared Elohim. Because of that, he made them houses. Hmm. Got a problem here. The authorities that exist are appointed by Elohim. Maybe there's another way to look at this, and this is coming closer to the truth than the government-inspired version, or usually what you hear in the whore churches, which are in fact appointed by uh, the God of this world, right? They have their 501c3 tax exemption. They don't want to risk that. They don't want to talk politics. They sure as hell don't want to uh, refute the government-inspired version. They're going to toe the line. Who are they serving? Who's their God? Who appointed them? The one that basically signed their certificate of incorporation and says, you want your tax exemption, you want your manse, you want your G4, you had better toe the line. So um, I think we're starting to get a look closer to the truth. One last comment, I guess. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, we know, for example, lots of examples in Scripture, Nebuchadnezzar, people that were allowed to do what they were uh, brought to do, and it was, in fact, Elohim that allowed them to do that. The book of Job seems to suggest that, yep, Hasatan too, the adversary, he was allowed to do what he intended to do, Still, there were rules that were put upon him. I'm going to just ask this, um, I guess, the summary as a question. Um, the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So does that mean that um, you should have obeyed Adolf Hitler? If you were a, uh, a Jew or anybody else, for example, in uh, Germany in the uh, um, 1930s? How about the prince of this world? Should we obey him? Because he was clearly appointed by God. He's here because he was allowed to be here, the prince of this world, right? Uh, maybe Adam abdicated what he had. Do you see where this is going? How about the Antichrist? He's going to say, no one buys or sells without my mark. Do we obey him? Or do we understand that there is something going on here and that um, when it's being twisted, and Scripture gives us lots and lots of examples. King David didn't obey Saul, who was the king. He didn't kill Saul, you will note. But there is a line there, and David knew where it was, and he walked in obedience to God. As a matter of fact, he was man after Yah's own heart. So uh, I think that at least makes the point. And again, the point here uh, in the larger sense today is to set the stage, not just to debunk stuff that I would suggest is, if we think about it, pretty darn obvious anyway, and it's a twisting, and it's twisted by those who, uh, well, I use the term the whore church, because what does a whore do? Uh, a whore sells only her body. The whore church, they sell other people's bodies and souls. They certainly sold their own. I refer to certain scientists that tell you, take the poison poke. Uh, I am the great God science, says Fauci. You will be injected and die. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I'm going to tell you, mask sometimes, not mask other times. I'm going to tell you, natural immunity, that created by God and putting, none of that matters, right? Uh, what is whoring, folks? Whoring is selling something of value in violation of the creator's word and doing so in a way that makes a mockery of things he says to do and not to do. Hmm, okay. I, I think at least that, that pretty well makes certain things clear. Well, so there's part two of setting the stage.
And uh, remember, again, key here, the midwives feared Elohim. They feared Yah. They did not obey uh, Pharaoh, who, of course, was not obeying God either. Maybe that's part of the equation. All right, move on then to the next part of setting the stage, certainly the life of one of the most important people in the book. This is Moses, or Moshe. And essentially what we have is the story. Most of us are very familiar with it. Um, He was delivered from the water. Then he essentially was raised in Pharaoh's house, well, up until that fateful day when he looked into the burdens of his people and uh, did something about it. Pharaoh uh, was going to hear about it. Indeed, he did. And Moses had to leave. So he spent 40 years tending sheep out in the boondocks, Bamidbar, in the wilderness of Midian. And at the well there, he met his wife. So a lot of things happen. And um, those those first 40 years and then the next 40 years of Moses' life, they basically all take place uh, right here in this first por- uh, portion, Parsha, in the uh, the book of Shemot. Which brings us to the place where the uh, the rubber starts to meet the road, the uh, the burning starts to meet the bush, and we begin to see some really important things that set the rest of the stage. And uh, that's where I'm going to focus, and then we're going to kind of jump off a bit. But um, we know at least this part of the story too. Uh, Moses eventually not only is grown up, he's out there tending sheep, and he is uh, he's out doing his thing with the sheep. And it seems that the creator of the universe knew Moses pretty well by this point. He knew how to get his attention. And he came up with this burning bush idea. So he's at the furthest end of the wilderness. He came to the mountain of Elohim, to Horeb, and a a malak, an angel, a messenger, appeared out of a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked. It was burning, but it wasn't consumed. He was fascinated. He said, I'll turn turn here and look to see what this great sight is telling me, uh, why this bush isn't being burned. Elohim, Yahuwah, saw that he had turned aside. He called him. And, uh, right, everybody knows what we're supposed to do when you hear your name repeated twice. He says, um, well, he hears, Moses, Moses, or Moshe, Moshe. And the answer, Hineni. Okay, don't come any closer. Put your shoes off, because the place you're standing is holy ground. And then he, he says, Ani, I am, or uh, um, the Elohim of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And uh, then he says, I've seen the affliction of my people down in Egypt. He gives the message, essentially, And I will suggest that probably the most important element of this, one of those things that resonates certainly through the book, certainly through all of Scripture as well, Elohim said unto Moses, this is chapter 3, verse 14, I am that I am, the great I am. We've heard this rendered a lot of ways. In the Hebrew, it's usually a yea, a share, a yea. And uh, some will suggest that this is closer to the future tense, so that maybe a better way to render it might be, I will be what I will be. Uh, I actually like the uh, the understanding that it's kind of tenseless. I was, I am, I will be, what I was, what I am, and what I will be, perpetual. And furthermore, that fits with what he says next. He says, here's what you're going to tell them. Tell the children of Israel. Yahuwah, yod Hey vav Hey, Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Well, he has sent me to you. And this... this um, ought to be in the great big, uh, you know, flaming red burning bush kind of letters. This, he said, is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. Now, that's pretty sincere, pretty um, dramatic, and pretty serious. This is my name. Uh, yod Hey vav Hey. This is my name forever, throughout all generations. 
we'll pause because that deserves a, a pause and a little bit of understanding. If you have uh, your Bibles there, you know, take that and uh, and highlight it because it's uh, vitally important. We're going to see the other thing that's going to be repeated. It'll be indeed the last uh, verse in this week's Torah portion is he will say over and over again, Ani Yahuwah. Ani Yahuwah. I am. I am. This is my name, yod Hey vav Hey. And um, furthermore, we're even going to see that in the... Um, um, uh, two summaries, if you will, of the Ten Commandments that are going to show up later in this book and then uh, at the end of the uh, the Torah as well. Uh, he says, Anoki, Yahuwah, which is essentially another way of saying I am. It's almost identical, and uh, I've looked at this for years, and uh, you know, I'm hard-pressed to see what the, the real grammatic difference is other than it's differently used in Scripture. And that's kind of fascinating. He, he says, Anoki, Yahuwah, at uh, just a very few places, uh, such as in the repetition of the uh, the Ten Commandments those two times, and very few other places. Uh, and it's not uh, nowhere else, but certainly not nearly as many places as we see Ani Yahuwah over and over and over again. Now, the final element here of the uh, setup, of setting the stage, is the fact that, um, and, and this is kind of a long story, Moshe's... Um, well, I'm not a great speaker, I'm not a great orator, I'm slow of tongue, and so forth, and hey, don't pick me. And uh, later on, we, we see that uh, he is going to uh, get uh, some help from his brother Aaron. But ultimately, the uh, the theme, I think, that resonates through here is, um, look, they ain't going to believe me. Right? I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell these things to these folks, and they're just not going to believe me. So, so what then? Well, he gets given three signs... And uh, those three signs are going to play out. We're going to see that there are a lot more signs and wonders and miracles that follow as well to make it clear exactly who Moses is and exactly on behalf of whom he has been sent. But um, the portion ends this way. And I guess this is a great way to end the uh, setup for setting the stage because that's what it's done. Yahuwah says to Moshe, now this is after the uh, Pharaoh has said, hey, you, you, you guys are, uh, you, you think you got it rough yet? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you any more straw. Ha ha ha! Just see how you can make bricks now, but I'm not reducing your quota either, and we'll whip on you all if you don't do it. So he lowers the boom, and uh, they come back to Moshe, and they whine. Why have you dealt ill with this people? He says, look, you know, I kind of wish you'd never sent me. Why is it you bothered? Uh, because ever since I came to talk to Pharaoh in your name, he's dealt ill with this people. You haven't delivered them at all. Ooh, that sounds a little bit uh, uppity, if nothing else. And uh, then we get this, and this, too, is another one of those expressions that I think resonates throughout Scripture. It resonates throughout the cyclical nature of prophecy and should resonate with us today. Yahuwah says to Moses, Now you shall see. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. By a strong hand, he will let them go. By a strong hand, he will drive them out. Uh, Shalak them, but this is kind of with an emphasis. He's not just going to send them out. He's going to drive them out. And Elohim spoke to Moshe, and the last verse in the Torah portion says, Ani Yahuwah. Which, again, how's that for setting the stage? That is going to be the theme of literally the entire book here that I'm going to show you. Now you will see. Ani Yahuwah. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. And you'll know it. Okay, so with that on the table, uh, what I want to do is talk about a couple of other things that will... um, uh, I hope resonate, and we'll uh, we'll kind of tee off some of these themes. For example, this idea of they won't believe me. 
And, of course, the question always comes down to, well, how about us? Will we believe him now? Well, we have the advantage of hindsight. We have some disadvantages, too. Okay, we didn't see the, um, unless you watch Cecil B. DeMille's movie, right? Uh, you didn't see the, um, the staff become a nakash. Uh, we didn't see the parting of the Red Sea. We didn't see the various plagues. We didn't see the death of the firstborn. We didn't see a number of those things. But we certainly at least can read about them. We have the witness of Scripture, and that too is impressive. One of the things I like to point about, about about the Torah is it is arguably the most vetted, the most secure in terms of the elements in the text that show us that it is divinely inspired. The the, uh, the key words, the way that it uh, fits, how the pieces point backwards and forwards, how all of it, everything fits. And um, literally, uh, the more you study it, the more you realize this has to be divinely inspired. Greatest superconductor on the planet, uh, super, it's not superconductor, supercomputer on the planet, could not do uh, what has been done in this set of texts that we have. And that's just for starters. Uh, of course, uh, there are other witnesses as well, right? For example, uh, we see that when it comes to Scripture, uh, every culture on earth pretty much has a flood um, story. I won't say myth because it uh, clearly happened. And so many other elements like that that uh, that speak to multiple witnesses and the truth of Scripture. But still, back to this idea of setting the stage, and uh, the question that always comes up is, well, here we are. Where are we? I think whether people know it or not, whether or not the Pharaoh has said, uh, I'm going to take away your straw, but I'm still not going to reduce your tax burden. But hey, i got 70,000 more agents going to sit out to uh, harass your people and eat out your substance. Uh, on all kinds of fronts, folks, we have a level of tyranny, the likes of which is, um, let's just say, comparable in different ways. Uh, for example, the uh, people of um, the slaves, if you will, there in Mitzrayim probably didn't have to worry quite as much, even though the walls no doubt had ears, about what they said. They didn't text one another, and they didn't have to worry about the FBI busting down their door, taking them off to the gulag, because they said something bad about Pharaoh in the privacy of their own home, which they kind of sort of had, even if they were slaves, right? So, you know, you can ask questions. Are, are, are people today more enslaved, less enslaved? They're certainly more ignorant in a lot of respects. But um, regardless, I will contend, let's just kind of leave this on the table as a, uh, a postulate to be demonstrated, that um, the slavery today may be different in a number of respects, may be deeper in some respects, not quite as physical in others, but the burden is certainly more spiritual, more economic, and more um, psychological than what those people had. Although, as we're going to see, uh, they were bound pretty psychologically as well. And uh, indeed, that's part of the repeating cycle, a part of history that clearly rhymes here. So uh, where I want to go is uh, what's called the Haftorah portion that that uh, is, is said by the sages to correspond here. And you might look at this and go, well, why is that? It, it doesn't necessarily seem that it does. But I will suggest that when it came time to at least put the notes here together today, uh, it really fit where I wanted to go, and it certainly really fits with a lot of things that are parallels, or um, at least they rhyme in terms of the story. So the um, the Haftorah portion comes from the book of the prophet Yeshayahu, uh, Isaiah in English, but Yeshayahu, the salvation of Yah, is a really interesting way to describe his mission and his name. 27, chapter 27, verse 6 of the prophet's writings, and it has to do with a, um, well, let's just read it and see what it says here. Those who come he shall cause to take root 
in Yaakov, in Jacob. Okay, sons of Jacob. That's exactly how the portion begins, right? Here are their names. Israel shall blossom and bud. Now, as you know, I, I like to point out, isn't it interesting how often the guy who got renamed, they still use his old name, and sometimes, and here's one of them, they happen to use the pair of names, old name and new name, in the very same verse. Uh, yes, it's arbitrary where the verse uh, demarcations lie, but you can't argue that it's not in the same sentence, if anything. So, uh, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Yaakov, Israel shall blossom and bud. So maybe this is the physical root of uh, Jacob, but it's going to be Israel that blossoms and bud. I, I think that's a, an interesting way to look at it. And they will fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, what's fruit? Well, it can be literal, but it's also a figurative term, meaning stuff that is measurable, demonstrable. Yeshua says oh, they will know us by their fruit. So this sounds like something which is a good thing, that is, if the fruit is good. Has he struck Israel? Has he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? Now, you read this and you think, okay, now there's a number of ways that this resonates with Scripture. Certainly, there were times where he was struck. Uh, well, right there, when you see it that way, you say, that sounds a lot like the references to uh, uh, the time of uh, the, the beginning of the current era, the time of Yeshua and the end of his life on uh, on the earth, at least uh, during this first time around. So is that what he's referring to? Yep, I, I don't doubt that that's part of it. Uh, there's probably more as well because he's warned about those who would be slain. That part of the cycle has rhymed and repeated as well. Uh, anyway, he says, in measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this... By this, the Torahlessness, the iniquity of Yaakov, will be covered. By this. What's the this he's talking about? Or what, is it an action? Is it a, um, you know, is it the shedding of blood? Um, or is it all of the above? But whatever it is, it results in the covering of the iniquity, the Torahlessness, the uh, deserving of death rebellion, of Yaakov. And this is all of the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. So something that's going on here has to do with destroying various pagan altars and replacing it with something that's more akin to the, what, one true Elohim. Yet it says, fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken, left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, there it will lie down and consume its branches." So if you've ever seen, uh, I haven't uh, raised cattle, but I've certainly raised sheep, uh, well, actually more goats, and I've seen, I've been around some sheep. Uh, those animals, uh, goats love nice pine branches. You know, you, you, you take a, uh, a bough off of a pine tree and cut it off and, and toss it in there. The goats love that. It's a great treat. They'll, they'll eat that. They will consume its branches. So uh, here's a metaphor that I, I've seen firsthand. Uh, the women will come and set them on fire. Well, yeah, once the branches are consumed, what's left is just some woody sticks, and uh, that makes uh, for a good use of them. For it is, uh, oh, oh, this really resonates. He's talking about what? Uh, we're, the reference here has to do with Yaakov and uh, Israel and the fruit of those things. And Yaakov, as, as a physical root, there are going to be elements, and we see this repeated in Scripture, elements of things that are, in fact, deserving of being consumed by the fire and a remnant. Is that what he's referring to? Well, one thing's for sure. This verse clarifies a huge aspect of it. By the way, this too repeats, rhymes throughout history. Uh, for it is, he says, a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not 
have mercy on them. Okay. He who formed them will show them no favor. So there's a warning here. And uh, I guess at this point the warning is, uh, is becoming a, a promise. He will have no mercy. No mercy on them. And he will show them no favor. We're almost at the end of the chapter, and it's going to set up what I think is the real meat of, uh, of the uh, um, setting the stage. And it's setting the stage for a different part of the cycle. So he says, it'll come to pass in that day. What day? This people of no understanding will have no mercy, and he who formed them will show them no favor. It'll come, it'll come to pass in that day that Yahuwah will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, so this whole land, and you will be gathered one by one, oh... You, Benai Israel, O oh, you children of Israel. Now, is this referring to just, quote-unquote, the Jews? And uh, this is one of those places where I think um, most people who have listened and studied will know the term, uh, the, the term Israel, the reference here, has to be interpreted in context. When we're talking about the mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt, out of bondage, it's coal Israel, all of them. And that, that included those who were grafted in, not just the 12 tribes and the descendants of them, but others who said, hey, I like this, I like Moshe, I like what I'm seeing here, I want to go and serve that God. So um, you will be gathered one by one, oh, you Benai Israel. Uh, you know, you can argue, but my mileage, um, your mileage may vary, my, my mileage suggests that um, he is talking to those of us who choose to be numbered among the Benai Israel, whether we know our exact lineage or not, I would suggest. Okay, so it'll come to pass in that day, the great trumpet, the shofar, actually is the word there in Hebrew, will be blown. They'll come, who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship Yahuwah in the holy mount in Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, with respect to this reference to those who are uh, the grafted-in ones, sounds like they are fixing to perish if they don't come along to where they know they ought to be. From there, and it does change gears, chapter 28 uh, continues, and um, at this point I will mention the, the setup for this, uh, the Haftorah, if you read a lot of the the, um, the commentaries, they will say, oh, well, this is Isaiah's writing about the end of days. The end of days. Well, you know, I like to ask this question, are we there yet? Can we just smell it from here? We can certainly see elements that suggest we're close, but remember, uh, close only really counts in nuclear weapons and horseshoes. Uh, come to think of it, maybe, maybe we're close in some of those areas as well. But um, how close is always the question, and as is usually the case, most folks won't recognize it until it's done and in the rearview mirror. So in, a, in certain respects, it's kind of a meaningless question to say, how close are we, right? Uh, by the time you realize you're heading downhill and over the cliff, but it's too steep of a slope to stop on, you might as well say, hey, we're committed. So um, yeah, are we there yet? Well, folks, let's just see whether or not this fits, and there are some lessons here that we see might resonate now so it starts like this woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim so we're talking before we've been talking about Yaakov and Israel but all of a sudden we switch to the drunkards of Ephraim 
Okay, quick um, quick bit of uh, history. Most will, again, know this, but at the risk of repetition, uh, we see the, the uh, time of United Kingdom of Israel, Coal, Israel, and all the 12 tribes, really only two kings in all of history where Israel was more or less united and um, at its maximum extent. That was first King David, then his son Solomon. After Solomon and his sons, then the kingdom was split. And we see the kingdom of the north, uh, lots of names in scripture, uh, right? The whore church is the one that I like to refer to today. The descendants of uh, Ahola, the uh, terminology that's used by the prophets, at least one of the prophets. Uh, the northern kingdom, Samaria, aka Israel. Meanwhile, southern kingdom, Judah, and um, Aholabah and uh, the uh, the southern part of uh, you know what is um, modern day Israel. Two kingdoms, two kings. Okay, king of the south, the kings of Judah. If you look in Chronicles and Kings, you'll see that there are uh, a whole list of kings of both that are named. Uh, for the most part, the general concept is they they obeyed not Yahuwah. And, uh, you know, the next one did even worse than his father's and so forth and so on. But uh, bottom line is the uh, lines of the kings of the north are usually referred to in Scripture by the name of that son that was grafted in. We just talked about this last week of Jacob. He was actually Joseph's son, but he was accepted or adopted or grafted in by Yaakov. And he was given the, uh, the two of them, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, the, the right of the firstborn to replace Reuben, who blew it. So what we got here, in other words, is a reference to this king, uh, the, the line of the kings of the north of Ephraim. So woe to the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim. Sounds like, in other words, we're talking about the northern kingdom specifically, but we'll see if there's not more to it. Whose glorious beauty, hey, good stuff, right? Maybe not, is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. He just called them drunkards. Says they're overcome with wine. Behold, um, Adonai, uh, and actually in this case, uh, yeah, it's uh, the word is the Lord. They're the Lord here has a mighty and a strong one, or is, and uh, this is kind of an interesting one to look up in here. But it basically says uh, this strength, this mightiness, uh, is of Yod Hey Vav Hey, or the Lord in this case. Uh, but we know who that's talking about. Uh, it's like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who, meaning he, will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, there it is again, will be trampled underfoot. Now, you kind of had a suspicion when he called them drunkards that it wasn't going to end well for them. So trampling underfoot doesn't sound like a good thing. The glorious beauty that, that they were so proud of um, is a fading flower. And it says it again. This is a repetition of the first verse, which is at the head of the Verdant Valley. Like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it's still in his hand. Doesn't last long. Okay. And that day, Yahuwah Zevuot will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Now, what's, um, what's interesting, and at the same time, it can be kind of confusing about prophecies like this, is it sounds like in so many of these places, at the same time, we're seeing something which is terrifying on the one hand and uh, comforting on the other hand. And I guess it all depends on which team you're on, right? To those that are the remnant of his people, well, that, that's a good thing, good place to be. For a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back 
the battle at the gate. It all depends on whose team you are on, which uh, who you serve. But, oh, wait a second. Uh, there's a but here, huh? Yep, got to listen to when there's a but, especially when it sounds like it's applying to his people. But, he says, they too have erred through wine. So, in spite of the fact that, in general, this sounds like good stuff, he says, nope, they, they too have erred through wine. And through uh, intoxicating drink, they are out of the way. What? Somehow or other, uh, they were on the right team. They're among the remnant here, and yet they have, um, at least prophetically, they have fallen victim to this same thing. This this intoxicating drink aired through wine. Now, I saw this, and I was thinking about it, and... Um, We're going to go into a couple of verses, uh, references in the writings of Paul, for example, on this score in just a second. But I will, um, I'll suggest whenever you see things like this in Scripture, intoxicating drink or wine is one of them. It uh, it certainly can refer specifically to what it's talking about. Somebody who's just playing a drunkard gets drunk. Uh, well, then we say, does it apply to somebody who maybe gets uh, gets stoned on uh, you know filling your preferred drug, fentanyl, magic mushrooms, whatever the case may be, and can't think straight and uh, falls over and uh, you know just becomes worthless, lying in the ditch. Uh, yeah, arguably so. Uh, you know, bathed in feces and vomit on the streets of San Francisco with a few needles strewn around. Uh, that's all. At least I would say part of the same metaphor. But maybe there's more to it. And I say that because of the next couple of verses here. The Kohen, the priest in English, but the Kohen and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. So we got these people who have also erred. Even though they may or may not be among the remnant, can they become out of the remnant? I guess that certainly is one of the things being implied. The priest and the prophet have erred also through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way. In other words, they took themselves out of the equation. They took themselves off the playing field. They got sent to the sidelines for the same reason, because they fell for whatever it was that was causing the problem to the entire line of Ephraim here, those that were the drunkards that were uh, so full of their own pride. Let's read what it says, and I'm going to ask a question. Okay, they're swallowed up by wine, out of the way, because of intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment, because all of their tables are full of vomit and filth. Literally, there's no place. Now, the uh, King James and the New King James add uh, some words there. No place is clean. But uh, I think the way it's stated in the Hebrew kind of makes it even more bluntly. Uh, their tables are all full of vomit and filth. There's just plain no place. Yeah, it ain't no place to set nothing. It's a mess, right? Now, they're going to ask some questions. He's going to ask some questions, and they're important. But I'm going to ask a question or two first. Intoxicating drink. Wine. Uh, does sound a bit metaphorical, if if not also literal. So I'm not going to say it's not literal. But i got to ask this question. If we want to look at it today and suggest, okay, uh, are we at the end times yet? Uh, what is the danger? What is it that be, we're being warned about? And uh, what is intoxicating drink? Well, I, I you know, I uh, I won't say I'm a teetotaler. I might have a little bit of wine on, on Sabbath. But uh, on the other hand, uh, intoxicating drink has never been of any appeal to me. 
And it's not the kind of thing where I say, I want to go out and get drunk. Okay, some some folks do. I'm not saying one thing uh, or another about that. Obviously, when it becomes a problem, and it is here, then it's something that can end up being uh, more than a problem. It can be, end up being deadly. But is it just possible that there's more to it? So let me ask it again. Intoxicating drink. Well, uh, what is it? Wine. Ah, okay. How about this? Because it, it occurred to me as uh, I was thinking about this that there are some metaphors that I have used for a long time. Uh, one of them dates back to uh, Jim Jones and Guyana, if you remember that. Remember what they were telling people then? Hey, they were drinking the Kool-Aid. You got all these people drinking the Kool-Aid and killing themselves or getting killed. Or they drank the Kool-Aid and the Kool-Aid had poison in it. Uh, so I'll ask it. Could the Kool-Aid be intoxicating drink? certainly cost them their lives. In other words, and, and if we replace this um, if we replace this sentence here, it almost sounds humorous. It's not intended to be humorous, but it is intended to resonate the same way. They too have erred, says Scripture, through drinking the Kool-Aid and through intoxicating drink and, and through having drunk the Kool-Aid, they're out of the way. Now, as you know, of late, we have a new metaphor that I think is every bit as apropos and uh, certainly more of a modern context. Nowadays, people don't drink the Kool-Aid. They drink the Bud Light. Okay, you got your kids? Going to let your kids have their genitalia cut off? Going to go into Target and buy yourself a little bit of augmented swimming suit so that your tranny uh, boy can pack heat and still win the girls' swimming competition? How's that for drinking the Bud Light? And, um, of course... um, Bud Light was all, I think probably it would today be considered the biggest marketing debacle in history. They destroyed the brand, they destroyed their profitability, and they are literally a metaphor for people that well, drink the Bud Light. So, they too have erred through drinking the Bud Light. And having drunk the Bud Light, they're out of the way. Nobody pays attention to them anymore. You know, if you think about Scripture, in other words, and read some of these things prophetically in terms of a metaphor, that might not quite sound so Old Testament, but might sound like something you could see right there on CNN that you're being told, hey, have a Bud Light. Uh, all of a sudden, the um, both the prophetic implications and, yeah, the danger becomes more clear. What, what does this tell us, for example, about the whore church that has been drinking the Bud Light? You got your, um, your, your female uh, rabbis that didn't used to be considered rabbis, but the Reformed uh, Rabbinical Assembly says that's fine. How about you, you got your gay, transgendered, um, fill in the blank, masquerading as a priest, a uh, potentate, a preacher, whatever the case may be. Uh, the Catholic Church, as you know, uh, Romanism has taken some real hits lately. They decided, uh, is that a proper blessing for the gays? Yeah, we will bless them and call them, uh, uh, turns out a whole lot of uh, quote-unquote traditional Catholics you know, said the hell with that. And the quote-unquote church and the uh, Pope Satan has had to backpedal a lot. Uh, I haven't been paying much attention, but I know that there are probably Catholics who can, uh, who can comment a little bit more on the inside baseball here. But uh, by and large, Pope Satan has been, uh, has been reeling a bit from that decision to allow abominations to be blessed and say that it's the whore church that gets to decide, as opposed to the creator of the universe. I guess maybe there's nothing new there. So, yeah, you could say they're all drinking the Bud Light. And that, of course, is a, is a real key. Um, if we understand that even among the remnant, maybe especially among those who tell you that they're the remnant, they're the one to true church, um, are there those who have erred through wine, through drinking the Bud Light, drinking the Kool-Aid, and through intoxicating drink, having drunk the Bud Light, they are out of the way? 
The priest and the prophet have erred through drinking the Bud Light. Their tables, they're full of vomit and filth. Hell, they, they bless abomination. Yeah, I can't help but think, you know, you read this, you put it in the proper context, this ought to leap off the page and say, hey, here is a message for today. So it, 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 it sets the stage for this next question. This is the one I've been leading up to because the Creator then turns around through his prophet Isaiah and he says, all right, well then whom will he teach knowledge? Whom? Who, who will there be who he can teach knowledge? And whom will be made to understand the message? Who will he allow? Who will he put in place to hear, to understand? The message. Now, you can almost see where this verse is going, because if you've read anything in Scripture when it comes to a metaphor, we're going to see it. Here we go. Whom will he make to understand this message? Those just weaned from milk? The milk drinkers? Oh, wait a second, right? You know what we're all thinking. Oh, yeah, didn't Paul have something to say about that? Well, we'll go there in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and not, and not that place alone. Uh, you, you gonna teach this message to the milk drinkers? Or maybe is there something else here we need to be thinking about? Who will he teach? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? Nope. For pre precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, I always point out that, um, you know, if you, if you want to read the Scripture, you'll hear the, the whore church people tell you, oh, don't pay any attention to that Old Testament stuff. You can't understand it anyway. It's all done away with. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Uh, turn to John 1.1. 1, 1. Start reading there. Oh, yeah, if you don't have any understanding at all, that won't fix you. You can drink the Kool-Aid right off the top and don't even have to worry about whether it's a Bud Light or not. Line upon line, precept upon precept. I will suggest that what he tells us is you start in the beginning. Bear a sheet. And we read through the scripture the way that it should be. The way that, in fact, um, if we do understand it, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, the pieces begin to fall into place. And we're not deceived. We're not drinking the Bud Light. We're not filled with intoxicating drink. The priest and the prophet alone and alike uh, don't fall out of the way and then wallow in their own vomit in the streets of San Francisco. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. He will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest that you may cause the weary, the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet, yet what? Yet they would not hear. Hmm. It isn't that, isn't that kind of the story of uh, Scripture. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen in the garden. Moshe was concerned, hey, they're not going to listen to me. Uh, there were elements that he was very right about, others not so much. What does the Creator say? Uh, they will listen. I want to make clear, they will know. Ki ani Yahuwah. But it says this in Isaiah chapter 28. But the word of Yahuwah was to them, exactly what he just finished saying, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backwards, huh? And be broken and snared and caught. Now, that, folks, I think, if we're looking for a mystery, for a metaphor, for a way to tie things together and say, here is, uh, here is the human condition in just a few verses, that's it. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, so that they might go and then fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. 
you've heard lots of references. This this portion started with this idea of pride, the pride of Ephraim. And they're drinking the wine, they're drinking the Kool-Aid, they're drinking the Bud Light. And they end up putting themselves out of the way. Uh, what is the human condition? Study a little bit, then get overwhelmed with pride, and then fall backwards and be snared and caught. So, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Oops, wait a minute, that's, that's uh, Solomon. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, that's good, but here's how it ends here. Not ends, but it, the, the, the section at least does. Therefore, hear the word of Yahuwah, you scornful men who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you've said... Now, as I, as I read this, I'm going to ask the question, doesn't this sound like Hollywood? Doesn't this sound like what we see in the swamp? Doesn't this sound like the, uh, you know, the picture that you saw of the Bidenfuhrer with his fists raised, uh, channeling Adolf Hitler and the demons of the prince of this world? Doesn't it sound like what's being taught in the cesspools? Cut off your genitalia and die. You're nothing but slime anyway. Evolve from the primordial gunk and you will return there. You're nothing. Besides which, when you breathe, it pollutes Gaia, the mother planet, and you need to die there. Don't worry, we got a plan to kill you. What does he say? How does he put it? Because you've said, we have made a covenant with death. Right, Tony? Fauci? I am the great God, science. We have made a covenant with death. Folks, this should also, so much of this, should leap off the page. Yep, if these are the end times, this is exactly what we're seeing play out. Because you've said, we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol. Sometimes it's rendered hell, sometimes it's rendered the grave, but Sheol is the name there, the proper noun. With Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, when the Fauci comes with his minion of Satan who walk in men's shoes and issue their decrees and require that you take the Zyklon B, get your graphene injections and all that crap, whatever the next one might be, oh, they got their Ebola, they got their Marburg, and they got uh, vaccines with mRNA in them, going to fix you up real good, oh yeah. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it won't come to us, ha, 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 ha. For we have made lies our refuge. And under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. There I pause. I mean, didn't I just describe America for the last four years or so? We have made a covenant with death. We're in agreement with hell, with Sheol. We are on a road to hell. We're bringing the whole country down to the very pit itself. We have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. I guess all I can say there, if you remember how you used to, uh, in, in uh, proof text when you did some math problems or geometry problems, QED, Latin, for basically, hey, quite easily done, right? Okay, that's the, uh, that's the proof, here it is. And that's what I read this and say, <laughs> there we are. There is uh, the world, uh, circa January 5th or so. 2023, or 2024 now. Does it matter? Therefore, thus says Yahuwah Eloheka, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a true stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not, now this is an interesting rendering, will not act hastily. Uh, the English in the New King James says will not act hastily. Uh, other renderings in English will say things will not rush to arms. And I think that's a... Um, that's a, a really interesting take, too, for where we are. 
and for what people will be tempted to do as they look out and they say, hey, you know, I don't necessarily serve this uh, prince of this world that's made this covenant with death. Is the covenant with death. You can see it with their tattoos. You can see it with what they're pushing out of Hollywood. Wow. But whoever believes will not act hastily, will not rush to arms. Cool your jets. Think about this a little bit, because the Creator is warning about going off half-cocked and fighting those who've already made their own covenant with death. What does he say instead? Also, I will make justice the measuring line, and zadika, that word righteousness, right? Torah obedience, that's what righteousness means. I will make righteousness the plummet, the plumb bob, the vertical standard. Right, So we have a measuring line that measures things in the horizontal plane, the plumb bob in the vertical. In other words, this is how you know where you're at and how to build straight and tall. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. Hail, hail. Isn't hail one of the plagues we're going to see coming up? Uh, does sound familiar, doesn't it? And the waters will overflow the hiding place. Water seeks the low place. Uh, what, the deep underground military bunkers? Um, your covenant with death will be annulled. Now, listen to this. Too. I'm going to read the whole verse, and I'm going, to, I'm going to step back and say, isn't this interesting? Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol, with hell, with the grave, will not stand. Okay. When I read this, nowadays especially, you know, uh, I'm real big on understanding the concept of the husband and the authority that is given in the Creator to say, you know what, when it comes to my wives and my daughters... I have authority over those vows. What was it that Yeshua did at Gethsemane, right? Let this cup pass from me. Nope, not my will, but thy will be done. He drank the cup of the wife accused of adultery. That metaphor not only percolates throughout Scripture, but uh, it sounds to me like there's a reference to it right here. Why do I say that? Who has the authority to annul a covenant, even a covenant with death? Answer the husband. It is what we should do for our daughters and our wives when we hear a vow that amounts to a covenant with death. right? If you hear a covenant, I, I, I will die. I will choose to die. For crying out loud, husbands, cast that down right now. And probably there's a demonic element involved too. You better cast that out. All of these things are key. They are authorities that we have in him if we understand his word, line by line, precept by precept. And that's what he is saying here, too, to those who have made this covenant with death. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Now, does that mean for those that made the covenant? Or is it maybe, and, and we'll, we'll have to think about this, is it maybe those who would suffer because the leadership of a country, and remember, all authority that is is ordained by God. They made that covenant with death. So you peons out there, when Big Brother says jump, you say how high. When Big Brother say die, you say, yes, sir, stick me that needle here. Give me the Bud Light. I'm drinking it up. There are those who at least I think uh, would would maybe have been deceived to thinking they're under that authority that... Um, Perhaps our more direct reference here. Okay, When the overflowing scourge passes through, he says, then you will be trampled down by it. Okay, that doesn't sound good. You want to be out of that way. As often as it goes out, it'll take you. For morning by morning it'll pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. I think, in other words, it's been clarified just a bit. He's talking about those who have made the covenant with death and who seek to exercise that covenant, that agreement, on others. 
they're in a whole heap of trouble. For the bet's too short to stretch out on, the covering so narrow that one can't wrap himself. For Yahuwah will rise up, as at Mount Perizim, he will be angry, as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore, he says, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. Let's go back and take a look at this whole thing now in context. We've got those people who are full of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim. They're drinking the Bud Light, drinking the Kool-Aid. They are just so full of themselves. They're too sexy for their shirt, right? We've heard all the metaphors. And not only that, they've made a covenant with death. They're going to enforce it. And even those people who might have stood against it, some of them are going to get sucked in, drink the Bud Light, uh, the Kool-Aid as well. What about those who are on the fence or who at least maybe pray to have eyes to see, to be genuinely part of the remnant and not be deceived. He's going to do this work, this awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. This is not a time to be mocking his word. Lest your bonds be made strong. For I, this sounds like the prophet talking, I have heard from Yahuwah Zevuot, a destruction determined upon even the whole earth. So I guess now you can see why it says uh, uh, the, the prophets, the uh, the sages, those that have been studying this, uh, the, the commentaries, will call this a prophecy of the end of days. So let's see how it ends. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen, hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Now, these metaphors... Again, they're agricultural metaphors. People that have never been outside of New York City may have some trouble with them. But um, he's asking a rhetorical question, and we're going to get the answer here. Does he keep turning the soil and breaking up the clods when he's leveled the surface? Okay. In other words, doesn't there come a point at which he decides, I'm done here, now I start phase two, like planting. What does he do? When he's leveled the surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? plant the wheat in rows, the barley in its appointed place, and the spelt in its place. In other words, he's done all this work. Now it's time to plant that seed. For he instructs him in right judgment. His Elohim teaches him. The farmer is doing the work. Yeshua uses this metaphor, right, of the sower of the seed as well. And as you know, if he doesn't take care to where he sows it, if the soil isn't properly prepared, we can have some uh, some real issues. The black cumin. It's not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour? Well, that needs to be ground. Therefore, he doesn't thresh it forever. In other words, there's a proper treatment for the different kinds of crops resulting from these different kinds of seeds. He doesn't thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this. That uh, seems to be true of the other seed that he's planting, and uh, could that be a metaphor for some of us? This also comes from Yahuwah Zevuot, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Okay, that ends chapter 28, and I promised we would go to the to the other place here, and this reference that um, I um, I kind of alluded to and then skipped over, but I think it's a great way to begin to uh, to see where we are and to tie some of the ribbons on this, because if you if you understand this metaphor that Paul used, and I think he got it, um, it may appear in other places in Scripture too, but this is the easy one you will find to this idea of the milk drinkers. 
And um, it says this in uh, chapter 3 of the letter that he wrote to the people in Corinth. So the first one, as a matter of fact. Um, I'll read the verse, and I'll set up the the, uh, the context a bit, too. Brethren, he said, this is Paul talking, uh, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. In other words, people who don't understand the things that they need to understand. Um, you are, in fact, babes, he says, in the Mashiach. And here comes the verse we've all heard. I fed you with milk and not with meat, or not with solid food, say some renderings. Because uh, until now, you just plain weren't able to take it. You couldn't eat the solid food or the meat. Until now, you still just plain weren't able. And you know what? Even now, he says, you're still not able. Whoa. Now, that's the part that usually gets left out when people talk about, I'm ready for solid food. Don't tell me, though, about uh, he didn't change his Sabbath. Don't tell me what's food and what's not food. No, don't tell me about marriage, things I don't want to hear. Don't tell me any number of things, in other words, that the whore church says uh, I'm not supposed to listen to because I can't interpret that book without, uh, you know, a priest being laity. Uh, there is so much, in other words, that, um, well, people still aren't ready for solid food. Meat. Let's let's set it up. This is Paul a couple, uh, uh, 14, 15 verses earlier, but in chapter 2, where he says, Brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech. Now he sounds like Moshe, right? I wasn't a real eloquent talker. Uh, or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of Elohim. All right? He says, basically, I'm going to come to you, and I'm just going to talk about the Mashiach and, and things like that. However... Verse 4, I'm sorry, 6. We speak wisdom among those who are not mature. See, here's the problem. I come to you, I'm not a great speaker anyway. I do have the witness, the testimony of the Mashiach. But beyond that, um, the, the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age, they're not particularly good. They don't particularly have things on the ball. They're not mature. And they're coming to nothing. Isn't that exactly what we're talking about with Isaiah? They have made a covenant with death. Uh, maybe different rulers in different ages didn't make quite as blunt of a covenant with death, for example, as we see today with the Fauci's and the Biden Fuhrers and the so-called doctors and those who are saying, come on in, bring the invaders on in, take over. Meanwhile, we'll destroy our own infrastructure, cut off our own energy, energy feet, disarm our own people and dumb them down and make sure that the next generation is sterile and uh, you know, an abomination to Yah besides. How's that for cutting their own throats? The rulers of this age, lacking wisdom, they are coming to nothing, says Paul. And uh, I think he was probably understating the case compared to today. But we speak the wisdom of Elohim in a mystery. The hidden stuff which Elohim ordained before the ages... For our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for they, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, they wouldn't have fallen into the trap of doing exactly what he knew from the beginning was going to happen and set up the revelation and the restoration and the renewal of right relationship, the cleansing and all of those things, in other words. They wouldn't have, uh, they wouldn't have gone down that road. But here it's written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, uh, nor have um, entered into the heart of man the things which Elohim has prepared for those who love him. But Elohim has revealed them to us through his Ruach. 
For the Ruach searches all things, the Spirit, in, in some English renderings, uh, searches all things, yes, the deep things of Elohim. For what of man? What man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of Elohim except the Ruach, Elohim. Okay, so we've received, and, and so forth, he says. And then we, um, we see the transition to chapter 3, where he's saying, okay, look, uh, some of these things are spiritual. And if you had, well, what, line by line, precept by precept, if you've studied, if you'd showed yourself approved, if you were ready, then might be you'd be ready for some uh, solid food. But as it is, nope, they're still milk drinkers. I fed you milk, not solid food. And still, he says, you're not able to receive the solid food because you are still ahem, carnal. For, and we know this, right? Where there's envy, there's strife, there's divisions among you. Uh, aren't you behaving like mere men? And uh, basically one says, here's my teacher. I'm of Paul, I'm of another, and, and so forth and so on. Um, he goes on to describe the foundation. Line by line, precept by precept. What is the foundation? The rock. What is the rock? The same rock that we're going to see in this book. The same rock that we see throughout Scripture. Lots of metaphorical ways to put it, folks. But ultimately, it is he who is a unity, who is a chad, who may have multiple aspects, but still, it's all just one true yod Hey vav Hey, and that would include the salvation of yod Hey vav Hey, who is the Torah-made flesh, who came to do the things that he came to do. But ultimately, we're talking about the one true Elohim. That is the foundation. And he goes on to say that there'll come a time where... Um, People will build, and their work will become clear, and uh, those ones whose work endures will receive a reward. Let's talk about uh, one other aspect that, that mentions this milk and this meat thing, and see if um, a bit more of it doesn't kind of become become clear here. This is from Hebrews. Did Paul write Hebrews? I, I actually tend to think that uh, he influenced it, but um, doesn't sound to me exactly like the same author. Um, but anyway, uh, we don't know for sure. Some will say he did, and some will say he didn't. I, I don't really have a, a, a dog in this hunt, is the old saying. But what I do know is that Hebrews 5.12 references the same metaphor. And it says this in there. Um, let me begin with the uh, beginning of the chapter, too, because this is where the theme starts. Every high priest, every Kohen Gadol, taken from among men, is appointed uh, having to deal with things associated with pertaining to Elohim so that he can offer the gifts and the sacrifices, the offerings, and so forth and so on. He has compassion, and he is not chosen by himself, but he is in fact called by Elohim, says Paul, just as Aaron was. Likewise, the Mashiach, who glorified not himself to become uh, Kohen Gadol, but uh, it was he, it was the Creator, the, the Father, who said unto him, You're my son, today have I begotten you. And also, notes Paul, in another reference we see you are a priest forever, a Kohen forever, according to the line of the order of Melchizedek, or Melech Zedek. Zadok, a righteous one, a student of Torah, and Melech king. So Melech Zedek, and um, what? He was king of Shalom, the original that we see in Scripture. What about, um, what about this reference to the meat? Well, let's read on down. Um, of whom we have heard a lot said. And uh, a lot of these things that we're talking about here are hard to explain. Problem is, he says, you, who's he writing the letters to? Yeah, the people who are um, beginning to return to the word as written and to the Mashiach and to understand the things of the Creator. But he says, this is hard to explain, because you have become dull of hearing. 
again, he is critical, and he says, because you know what? Let's be honest. And I added a little paraphrase there, but you get the idea. Because by now, he says, you ought to be teachers. Right? If you'd been drinking milk and you were ready, you'd be teachers by now. You need someone instead to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of Elohim. You haven't come to need milk. Uh, no, you have come to need milk. You haven't come to need... You're not able. You still... He's. This does sound a lot like Paul, doesn't it? At least it's the same metaphor. You still can't handle solid food. Now, I'll come back to this in just a second, but I, I want to make the point here. Um, what is What is it that we're seeing... He says you need to go back again to first principles. What was it Isaiah said? Yeah, line by line, precept upon precept. Line upon line, precept upon precept. You don't start building your house upon the sand. Didn't uh, Yeshua use that metaphor? That too comes out of Torah. All kinds of references, in other words, to things that suggest we're supposed to be able to build and to ultimately teach because we have understood his word as written. And when we don't, when we say, oh, start at John 1-1 instead and just build your foundations right up there in the air, let them come crashing down as soon as the first little wave comes in, we got some problems. You have come to need milk, says Paul, and you're not able to handle solid food. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Because he's a babe. And here's another one of those places, and you notice that I emphasize, when you see the word righteousness, you need to think in terms of understanding his instruction. What does it mean to be skilled in the word? What does it mean to be a zadik? It means you understand his instruction. You walk in accord with his instruction. Does that mean I obey all of the law? What a stupid way to put it. Let me be honest. I obey the law. Can you obey the law of gravity, folks? You don't have a choice. Unless you're a Superman, and uh, I haven't seen one of those, and you can fly by willing it to be so, the law of gravity applies whether you like it or not. How about the law that you reap what you sow? Guess what? It applies whether you like it or not. What's exotic? Someone who understands the instruction about those things and says, you know what? I better not leap off a cliff. I better make sure that what I reap is what I wanted to because I sowed what it was I should have been sowing. There are so many places where, because people are without understanding, they can't handle solid food, some of them can't handle milk even, they choose to ignore his instruction. So honestly, I, I, I see these comments and I, I hear them online, and people, oh, I, I, I need to, uh, do, do you, are you a Torah obeyer? You, you teach that we must obey all of the uh, law of Moses? It's kind of a non sequitur, it's a stupid understanding. Okay, you can't obey the law of gravity. You can't obey uh, certain elements. There are pieces, for example, that you can't keep even if you wanted to. You can't make sacrifices in the place where it says. But on the other hand, understand that the law of Moses includes stories. We talk about them all the time. We've just finished talking about them. The story of Abraham and his unnamed servant, who is in fact one who comes in the name of his master and was a good and faithful servant. The story of contract and of buying and selling and doing so in accord with his word and according with our words. So uh, ultimately, there's a lot more to the instruction than just statutes, judgments, and commandments. So that's why I say, uh, no wonder the whore church has a whole lot of people that can't handle meat because they were never even taught the milk. And essentially, this is what Paul was saying. Now, when did he write these books? Well, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 uh, A.D., Certainly close to 2,000 years ago. And even then, 
He was worried about, well, for example, someone comes preaching another Jesus that we've not preached. You'll put up with it. You can't handle solid food. How are you going to be able to recognize the difference between the Antichrist and a fake? Because that's what's going to come. Yeshua warned about the same thing. So here we are looking at this and going, wow, uh, you know, are there parallels here? What is, what is the message? If, in fact, these are the end times, why am I going through all this stuff about setting the stage and understanding that, uh, you know, until you're ready for um, a little milk and then study line by line, precept by precept, and build upon the rock, we're not going to be able to, uh, to handle the meat at all? Here's what Paul says. This is the end of chapter 5 of uh, Hebrews. Solid food, he says, belongs to those who are of full age, mature, in other words. That is, who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That one, too, I'm going to just let sit there for a second. Solid food, not the milk drinkers. When are people ready? He said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. Y'all should be teachers by now. You ain't. You've been drinking too much of the Kool-Aid. You've been drinking the Bud Light. You are full of wine. Intoxication. You're not bearing good fruit, right? A thousand ways, and indeed most of them are in Scripture, to put it. But this is a great summary, and by the way, it's key, I think, to understanding where we are when it comes to setting the stage and what we need to be aware of and prepared for. Solid food, says Paul, belongs to those who are of full age, i.e., those who by reason of use, we've practiced. Our senses have been honed. They have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How do we do it? Remember that line in Isaiah about a plumb bob? What is the plumb bob of righteousness? It's his Torah, his instruction, the Zadik. It's, um, well, the very word righteousness, zadika, comes from the same root as the one who knows what that means and studies his word and his instruction and walks in it, the zadik. So over and over again, right, what does is, what is Yeshua say? Hey, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this good stuff in your name, cast out demons in your name, whether we really know it or not? What's his response? Depart from me, you who are Torahlessness, workers of iniquity, who don't know the plumb bob of righteousness... I never knew you. And elsewhere, he says, yeah, there's going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth. This is the place where we're at. Uh, Again, Paul, people who, by reason of use, have had their senses exercised to discernment, to discern both good and evil. How do we know? What is the measuring line? What is the plumb bob? Well, we've just been told. Line by line, precept by precept, we build upon the rock. We understand that all of these pieces fit together. Somebody tells you to throw away the foundation and build your house up on some sand pile, and don't worry, I'll tell you where to put it. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. Depart from such. (laughs) Recognize, by reason of having your senses exercised, to discern both good and evil. I see the the question, DUM stands for Deep Underground Military Base, or Bunkers. But yes, there are dumbs uh, all over uh, the country. There are uh, uh, bases in places. You can look online and find uh, some of them are public. Most of them are, are secret. Uh, one that most folks know about, there's a couple outside D.C. There's a tunnel system underneath that's public, uh, not any more hidden knowledge. There was a big resort outside of the uh, District of Criminals a little ways. Uh, probably the most famous one in the country is Cheyenne Mountain, uh, just west of Colorado Springs up in the mountains where they got the... Uh, at least used to survive a nuclear blast. I'm not sure it would survive a Tsar Bomba or not. Uh, if the Biden Fuhrer gets his way, maybe we'll find out. 
But, um, yeah, lots of references to these. Okay, so where we are, again, the stage has been set. And uh, I'll, I'll summarize um, what I think is a, a lot of the things that we're seeing here today uh, just by understanding that the threat, the risk, is immersion in a culture that is full of mockers and scoffers that hates his word. And a whore church that hates his word. Uh, whether, again, uh, you know, I, I, could, I could spend 20 minutes just listing the things that are in his word that they hate. His Sabbaths, his Moedim, his feast, what he says is food and not food, what he says is marriage and not marriage. You name it, folks. Up and down the line, mockers and scoffers, they have replaced it. They're not only not uh, milk drinkers, they're liars. And they're, they're, putting, they're lacing the word with poison, turning it on its head. And they're doing exactly what it was done uh, you know, to the people that succumbed to Jim Jones. And to the Kool-Aid drinkers of that era and the uh, Bud Light drinkers of today. Those who allow their children to be destroyed. Those who will immerse themselves in a culture that intends, without question, let's not kid ourselves, they intend to kill you. And, uh, you know, good company, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Lots of references to to the fact that uh, we are supposed to do what? Touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among them and be separate, says Yahuwah. Over and over again, the message is clear. Uh, We cannot literally be surrounded. We can't swim in filth, tables full of vomit, and not ultimately find that we're contaminated. Now, they have, in fact, made a covenant with death, with Sheol, with the grave. And um, we need to be as clear of that as we possibly can, in every way that we can. And in order to rightfully divide his word and discern, as Paul said, both good and evil. Uh, The time is here. The time has come. And I think we're going to see it. And we're going to have to not only see it, folks, we're going to have to learn by exercise to recognize and then to use the judgment and to take action, too. Not be willing to sit by and allow it to be done. Because ultimately, um, those who will hesitate, those who will allow these things to happen to their children or to their homes, they will be destroyed. That's not a uh, warning, it's a promise. Okay. So, um, yeah, lots and lots of comments on the screen about various kinds of things. It's, it's always interesting. Um, if you've ever heard the term, it's one that I remembered having uh, seen for a year or so before I finally realized what it was, but it's called a limited hangout. A limited hangout. And I actually read a kind of a tacky book when I was a, uh, a pubescent teen that, that demonstrated what a limited hangout was. Basically, it was this, uh, this young girl, and she was out doing it all over the place with everybody, and um, the limited hangout is she said, oh, mom caught me kissing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, today, the limited hangout is you got Jeffrey Epstein. And you got people that are basically saying, oh, yeah, we're, we've got a little bit of blackmail going on with the Bill Clintons of the world who's got a girl on each arm and he, he likes them young, you know. But don't worry. Uh, pay no attention to the fact that we're trafficking and executing and killing tens of thousands of kids and that we're invading the United States with not just uh, lots of wholesome little invaders from the South and from communist countries. Oh, no. we got military-age men from fill-in-the-blank. Every country that you can name and a whole bunch you probably don't know where they even are because you, you were public school educated. So uh, up and down the line, the limited hangout is a really effective tool of saying, okay, we'll admit to a little bit of a crime but not the big one, okay? We'll admit that, oh, maybe we took a little bribe here and there, but no, we don't even admit to that, because nowadays um, that, would, that would be too close to the truth, that we committed treason for money. 
So um, watch for the limited hangouts. Watch for the smokescreen. Watch for the other things. Because ultimately, the, um, the point of the, um, I call it the 80-20 rule. And this is, in fact, uh, the way that most people will believe the lie, right? Everybody here knows what it is, I hope. You'll hear it called Pareto's Law, but the 80-20 rule, you take an 80% truth and you mix 20% lies in it, and people will swallow it. They'll drink it right on down, like that Kool-Aid. And they'll think, oh, this is, this is okay. It's mostly true. But you know what? Rat poison is mostly good food. Only takes a few percent in the rat poison to kill the rat. So a lot less than 20% truth... Um, and well, and by the way, that's where we at too. You can eventually invert the mixture and sell them 80% lies and 20% truth. But the problem is, as you know, uh, when you mix the lies with the truth, you end up with more lies. And that's exactly how so much of this is going on. Okay, um, any other comments or questions? I don't... It's about causing division. It's about a whole bunch of things. Uh, but ultimately, this is where I think um, part of the key, and, and that's why I like this, um, this Haftorah portion here. The key is you go back and you study the truth, the whole truth. I, I hear people say, oh, for example, we disagree about his name. Uh, uh, you know, how do you pronounce this? Is it uh, Yahushua? Is it Yeshua? Uh, is it Jesus? Does it really matter? Well, it matters, folks, if someone comes preaching what Paul said, another Jesus whom we have not preached. Is it the pronunciation and the vowel pointers that's as key as the fact that there are those who are literally pushing a lie? They're telling you, Jesus did away with the law. Well, they don't even know what the law is, but furthermore, if he did away with it, one thing's for sure. He ain't the Messiah. Couldn't possibly be. So that is a dividing line, whether they get the vowel pointers right or not, that says they're worshiping, quote, another Jesus whom we have not preached. So up and down the line, the key is, do we mix a little bit of truth with the lie? The real one, this is how we recognize, how we discern both good and evil, and the real Mashiach from the fake that we've been promised is coming, he's probably already walking the earth, he will mix the truth with the lie. He'll say it doesn't matter, all roads lead. No, folks, that's not what the Mashiach, the real one, says. The way that leads to destruction is wide and broad, and that's how most folks are going to go. The path that leads to life, narrow. Enter via the narrow gate, the straight way. Few there be that find it. This is the issue. If we are not, in fact, searchers, if we do not, in fact, seek the truth, and uh, what is the plumb bob? What is the measuring line? It's his word as written, his instruction, all of it. Properly rendered, it is 100%, 100% properly rendered true. And if there's a little bit of lie in there, we need to ferret it out, understand it. By the way, sometimes we see that there are distinctions made in Scripture, and that, too, is part of his purpose to show us some of the finer points. I could give examples. You've, you've heard them here before. But, uh, again, the point is, if we will, in fact, do what he says, study to show yourself approved, rightly divide the word of Yah, if you ask, if you seek, you will find, you will receive. And we can, in fact, see that. And, and I've, I've told this story a hundred times. That was the thing that really convinced me that his word is exactly what he says it is, in the original language, as rendered, if we are faithful. It is his word. Because the more we study, the more we seek to prove that it is exactly what it is or that there are errors, the more we will come to understand the truth of what is written and what he has preserved for us if we will diligently seek his truth. 
And in fact, you know, we'll be surprised. Uh, Eyes can't even understand the glory of the things he's prepared for those that, in fact, do love him and walk in his ways. Okay, Uh, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Hekad. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved your word, that we have all the tools we need. For now, in such a time as this, when there is so much deception, to rightly divide your word, to seek and find the truth that you have given to us. So we pray, Father, we ask, because your word says we should. We ask that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. That your Torah would be a lamp to our feet. Shine your light upon your word. Give us discernment. Fill us with your Ruach. Show us the things you have for us to see, to understand, to study, to know, and to be ready for. We know that there are challenges. We know that you have also warned us that a man's enemies will be those of his own house and that furthermore, this deception that's coming will be so great that if it was allowed to continue, and you won't, you will not allow it to continue too far, for which we're thankful. But were it to continue, even the elect would be deceived. We're starting to see how with AI and with some of the deceptive tools and propaganda techniques and, uh, well, force-feeding of Kool-Aid and Bud Light that we have to be very careful. So we pray that you would protect us, that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that we would have discernment, both of spirits and of liars and of your word. Guide us in the way that we should walk. Show us the things that are important. Help us to be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the earth, to stand before you, and we pray, Father, that we would be found doing your work from now through all that lies ahead until that time and that we would enter into your rest. Guide us, because above all, we choose to be, we pray to be, good and faithful servants unto you. Bless all of those, we pray to, who seek likewise to do your work, to be called by your name. And all of this we ask in your set-apart name, for you are our King, our Mashiach, our Savior, the salvation of Yah, the Torah made flesh. You are Yahuwah Zedeknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot. You are our Almighty El Shaddai, our healer, Yahuwah Rapha, our banner, Yahuwah Nisi, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. So uh, let's begin to wrap up today then with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak and turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Israel. Say to them, Ibarekaka Yahuwah Vadishmareka, Yair Yahuwah Panavaleka Vichuneka, May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. And thus he said, They shall put Shami, my name, on the Benai Yisrael, and I myself shall bless them. And may it be so.